having a Latino educator is everything to Latino children and families, and I think to a lot of kids. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Building the Black Educator Pipeline podcast. You have come to the place where we talk to real people in the real struggle, doing the real work. I am your host, Shana Terrell, educated activist dedicated to the lifelong struggle of freedom and liberation for my people. Shout out to all my co-conspirators out there listening today. We are joined by Amanda Fernandez, social entrepreneur, CEO, and founder of Latinos for Education. So today we'll be discussing the impact of Latino teachers and leaders on education, and we'll be discussing so much more. But Amanda, welcome, welcome. Shana, I am so happy to be here. Thank you for your opening. The word that came to me uh, when you talked about the struggle and our culture, we say the la lucha. La lucha, la lucha continues. So thanks yes. for having me. La lucha, and that means the struggle? That That's right. Oh, that's I love right. that. Well, Amanda, welcome. We are happy to have you. As you know, we've been chasing you, girl, because we wanted you on our show. So we are excited. I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself so our listeners can know why. <laughs> why we wanted to talk to uh, Amanda Fernanda. So just a little bit about yourself, your work, past and present. Like, What should we know about Amanda? Thank you. I'm so, again, just happy to be here. So there are a few things that I think kind of put the picture together as to why I do what I do now um, in leading Latinos for Education. Um, I am a daughter of immigrants who came to this country in 1960, and I'm a first-generation college student. Um, My family came from Cuba, and Spanish was our first language. But I ended up growing up in middle America, in rural America, where there were no Latinos. And that experience sort of felt, kept me kind of disconnected from my culture. And the only way I got culture was spending summers in Miami with extended family. And it was really the place where I felt like this is my home. This is the food was better to me, the environment, the music, all of that. I really have gravitated to my Latinidad um, in, in all throughout my life. But um, I also saw that there were two different experiences due to education in my own household. One was my mother not accessing higher education and my father who was able to access higher education. He went to school here in the United States um, as an adult and got a degree, and my mother was not able to. So my parents worked on a college campus, on the same college campus, my father as a professor, my mother in the kitchens of the dorms, um, in the food service. And so I saw a very different outcome due to education, and I saw how hard it was for my mom to have an hourly job. And yet, I always say, and yet I always said and thought she was just as smart, if not smarter than my dad. <laughs> she would appreciate so that. She, sure. she she deserved opportunity. And so that kind of stayed with me. And I myself wasn't a great student. They often Latinos who are sort of in education, who have had the opportunity to go to college, 
who are in our network, who are part of our fellowships, they were the ones that in many cases were tapped, right? That, that one teacher saw something in them. That did not happen to me. There was not a teacher that saw something in me. So I did not really gravitate to school very well. And so I felt myself that I didn't have the access to the education I wish I would have gotten. Now that I see what educational opportunity and access looks like and what it can be for kids. So those experiences, and then just in my professional career, um, a couple of key inflection points that really got me into wanting to go deep into diversity, equity, and inclusion. One of those experiences was working for with two Black women. Those were my first mentors in the professional world. And it was the first time I'd been really exposed to understanding racism, inequality, inequity, bias, all of those things. And it really opened my eyes to the reality that too many people in our country experience being Latino, being Black, or other ethnicities. And so that really stuck with me. And I wanted to continue to be involved in ways in which I could make the world a more equitable place. I grew up under the false notion that meritocracy um, existed and that if you worked hard, you could succeed. That was the that was the belief and that has been the belief of many immigrants, but the American dream. And so I thought I'm chasing the American dream and then coming into the workforce and then reflecting on my own parents' experience, I realized that that was not the case. And that really fueled me to want to do more and stay in this work. I first got exposed to issues of Latino education more broadly, working for a nonprofit called the Bridgespan Group. And we worked on projects for other nonprofit clients. And one of our clients was, who is now Unidos, it used to be National Council of La Raza. And I started to see all the data about how kids were faring in our country, Latino children were faring educationally in our country. And once again, it just like, hit that bone of injustice in me that I just said, this is so unfair. This is not right. And that led me to working at Teach for America, where I led Latino external engagement for the organization. And it's really where I got to learn about how many amazing Latino educators are out there that don't feel like they have an opportunity to progress in the field. And I thought, this is unfair. Once again, we got to do something about this. And that led me to start Latinos for Education because I wanted to see more acceleration of Latino leadership and education that I know is necessary. And I felt like I needed to go do that outside of any other organization and just go for it and do it. Well, you were just out here living a life of passion, honey. I mean, when we listen to your story and the things that um, have impacted you um, and have driven you, uh, we see so much of that definitely in our young people today. Just being disenfranchised, disillusioned, right? Like, if I work hard, I'll get this. If I do this, this will happen for me. And this is not the, not the reality. Now, you talked about Latinos for Education. Please tell us a little bit more about that, about your organization and what you guys are doing. 
Well, I'm very happy to talk about Latinos for Education. It's one of my favorite subjects. So Latinos for Education is a labor of love. I started it because I believe that we had huge amounts of talent of Latinos in the education sector. Not only believed, I saw them. I interacted with them. I knew them. And the stories I kept hearing was, I would love to be in a leadership role. I just don't know how to get there. I don't know what the pathways are. I don't know what the unspoken rules are. And here we were, this was um, 10 years ago, and this all started to percolate for me, uh, with a growing Latino demographic in our school systems. Back then, it was one in four school children who identify as Latino. And in the next couple of years, we'll be at one in three school children identifying as Latino. And again, this sort of justice nerve hit me. And I said, wait, this is so disproportional. The level, the representation of Latinos in education, teachers and leaders relative to the growth of our population. Because before all that great research came out from people like Travis Bristol on the impact of educators of color on students, I knew it because I saw it. And I knew how important that connection was of having a Latino educator, having a school principal who identified as Latino, leading in a school or a district that had a large population of Latino students. So I, and then my background in general is in human capital, sort of leadership development, talent development. So I took sort of all the parts of my experience and brought it to bear to found Latinos for Education, which is now going on six years. And our mission is to develop, place, and connect essential Latino leadership in the education sector, while also introducing policies and doing advocacy work that will remove barriers to educational opportunity for Latino children, but I would argue for all low-income children. So that's the work. We, we focus on leadership development, and we have several fellowships that support that leadership development. We have sort of a mid, mid-level fellowship that's for educators or folks who work in the education ecosystem who have five to seven years of work experience. This was a key group because this was a group that didn't have, I mean, they worked in the field for a few years and yet didn't have a pathway to accelerate their leadership. During the pandemic, we launched the the Latinx Teacher Fellowship because we were really concerned about educator retention. As you know, both Black and Latino educators leave at year four at much faster rates. And then layer on that, the trauma of the pandemic on our communities, we were very concerned. So we launched the Latinx Teacher Fellowship. We have a fellowship that focuses on board level representation and bringing in Latinos from outside of the sector into education through board service. And then most recently, and one of my uh, just uh, near and dear to my heart, a fellowship we're offering right now in Houston called Familias Latinas por la Educación. And it's a family advocacy program fellowship that's completely done in Spanish for families whose first language is Spanish. And um, it's been really exciting to see how 
how that has flourished and how it supported our families flourish in their advocacy and belief in themselves as advocates. So that's on the program side. Amazing work. Very busy on that front. Amazing work. And then we do, we've recently stood up policy and advocacy work because we know that policies have got to be in place, whether it's at the local level at the or at the state level, um, that will support removing barriers to uh, more Latinos entering and staying in the profession, as well as other issues in education that that impact Latino children that we need to be addressing. And we need to have organized coalitions that are uh, making sure that we've got the right policies in place that do promote equity in education. For sure. So what I would love to highlight is a lot of times when we're talking about disparities um, and the disproportions of education, we do focus and zero in a lot on the teacher shortage or the teacher disparity, which I think is important. But your organization has really sought to highlight the need for leadership. Can you talk about why that was an important choice for you to place our Latino educators in positions of leadership? We are a leadership development organization at, at our core because of the uh, level of impact that we know a school principal has over a school and decision-making in school or that someone working in a central office in a senior level capacity has on a school district, obviously a superintendent and their, their lens and their breadth of responsibility is really important because it, it then sets up the system to be more improved for Mm -hmm. both the educator experience and the student experience. Mm-hmm. And those things need to go hand in hand if we're really going to see educational outcomes improve for low-income children. So that's why we started with that leadership tier and folks who are, again, sort of in that early stage of trying to figure out, because not enough of us have belief that we can actually be in those positions. Yes. I mean, you- well, you put out a pretty clear point about people don't even know how. They right? don't know they don't- how. They don't, they don't even know it's a pathway. And especially, again, just like kids, right? You you can be what you can see. You can't be what you can't see. So if your you know, experience is not seeing a bunch of Latinos uh, in leadership, you as a Latinx person is like, maybe this isn't the job for me. Maybe this isn't where I belong. Or you get to the, to, to the positions and feel awkward or feel ostracized, don't have the leadership, don't have the support. So all of those things. All so of the above, yeah. The uh, the definitely the appreciation for focusing on ensuring that Latinos are in leadership positions in education because we also know that that's where the true decision making happens, <laughs> right? That's right, that's right. And we've also centered our work on again these key positions that have the most direct impact on decision making of what happens to children, what happens in our schools, and so we've centered our fellowships around building that ecosystem of decision makers. Oh, when you said making sure people are on boards, people don't talk enough about that, but that is where true decision making happens. Yet your board drives your organization. It does. Where it goes. It does. I mean, I look, I spent five years on the Massachusetts state board of elementary and secondary education. Mm. And 
I had to make sure that my voice, although I didn't want to speak for the Latino community, I had to represent. Yes. And I had to bring forward our issues and name things. It was one of the hardest things to do because mm. you don't want to speak for a large population. For everybody. And yes. yet at the same time, policies and decisions that were being made that would impact statewide how education was delivered, I had to speak when I mm -hmm. saw that policies were not directly translating to what the actual experience would be like for children and families who were Latino. But you know, you said something right there, right? When you said, I had to represent, but not speak for because I think sometimes we as people get that completely confused, right? We feel like we are we are the spokesperson for the community. Well, you're not. You're a representative of the community. Uh, you're here to maybe bring people into a world that they don't know and they don't understand. But please understand in these positions, you don't speak for all people because none of our people are monolith. So I appreciate you highlighting that point that you were there to represent, not to speak for. It's that a is, big, it's a big difference, isn't it, Shana? And we've got a huge a, difference. Our our communities have been spoken for by people mm. who shouldn't be speaking for them for us. Yes. For, forever. Yes. So I'm not about to come in and perpetuate that. Yes, Amanda, for sure. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just cracking up because I'm thinking about all the people who think that they can like speak <laughs> for the community or be the saying they're the representative, but really acting as a spokesperson, um, which again, we all have different experiences. We all come to the table with different opinions, um, but being a representative um, is definitely important. Girl, you speaking here today, okay? <laughs> for real. So I would love for you to talk about some of the challenges um, that our Latino students actually face due to the lack of Latino teachers and Latino leadership as well. Yeah. So... Unfortunately, there are numerous challenges that Latino students face. I don't want to get into a big thing on test scores because I, I mm -hmm. have a whole thing around how I think about assessment and accountability. But for purposes of this example, our children who are multilingual, our children who are special needs and low income, as we know, have have the lowest outcomes on on the measure of a test score. And that explains a lot of what's happening to our community right now. And at the same time, I want to be really clear that not all Latino students are English learners, mm -hmm. right? Actually, very few are. Most Latino children are born in this country and their first language is English. Mm -hmm. Their parents might not be, but theirs is. So so that's a that's an issue though because we aren't adequately addressing how we support English learners. And then if you put on uh, overlay that with any special needs that that an English learner may have, this is a community that is affected the most by not having the educators that they need to support them both who can educate them in their language, the environment that's created for their learning, and the systems of support that are offered. That's just one group. 
Latinos in general, it's very similar for Latino children in terms of uh, because there is such low representation of Latinos in our schools across the country, we're still hovering years later at around 9% representation of Latino teachers. Guess what? That means most kids will never experience a Latino educator. And so what does that mean? The connection to the school is more difficult. Um, the school culture is not as affirming, whether it's the food in the for lunch or the texts that are read, culturally uh, affirming curricula. So all of those pieces, when you don't have people whose mindset or lens isn't centered around who the students are and where they come from and what they value and what their cultures value, you have then that disparity or that widening of educational um, opportunity being denied. And that's, that's really important. And that is why I think we're seeing so many of our students still struggling. The last thing I'll say is the parent and the family engagement piece as well. Look, our our immigrant families, we come from countries where we never got any rights at all. We came from dictatorships. We fled countries that um, if our sons didn't join um, the local gang, they would get killed. And, and so when family, Latino families come to this country for a better opportunity, anything is better than what they came from in many instances. And so they, then they don't also have the, the tools, just as my parents did not, to navigate the education system, to actually, actually feel empowered to actually advocate for their kids and know what to even advocate for. for. Yes. Because the system, as we know, was not designed in the first place for children of color. And then layer on that, our families not having the tools, the support um, to navigate. Mm -hmm. Then when the families don't feel connected, then our kids don't feel as connected. And that adds, again, another layer to this complex system that we're all trying to navigate. Yeah. And I mean, you bring up a huge point um, and I'm glad you illustrated that in terms of the experience that immigrant parents have and then arriving in this country. So things that school buildings or school teachers and leaders assume as um, disengagement, not caring. It's not that they haven't had the experience of being having involvement or feeling like they even have a voice or a say. Um, in their child's education. And again, as you know, that that same attitude is given a lot to to Black parents. Yes. But when you come from historically or uh, cultural backgrounds where you're not empowered, right? We send our kids to school and schools have all the power. That's just what it's been for us. And then you look <laughs> in, in some of these rural areas where you have what is these moms for liberty or whatever, who they've always been told that they have the right or have the voice. You know what I mean? In their child's education and the school answers to them. That's right. Historically, that experience is just different. But that's why I appreciate you highlighting because I think that the responsibility then lies on the school and it does lie on the leadership 
And this is why it's a larger push to have more Latinx, more Black uh, principals or leaders in place who have that understanding in that historical context. So do way more work to bring in parents who do way more work to meet parents where they are and do way more work to actually empower parents to understand that they have the rights and and that schools answer to them. That's right. And kudos to the districts and the schools that are doing that. We can't say there aren't a lot of bright spots, but there's a lot of work to be done. For sure. I mean, when we were during the pandemic, Latinos for Education, I will not name the school district, asked us to translate materials into Spanish during the pandemic because they didn't have the capacity or resources to give the same level of information in a different language to families that they were giving to English speaking families. So what we were seeing was a Google translated document, which was super offensive to us when we read it. Of course. And, and so that still happens. Let's just, just saying so we we have extremes of where the and and there's a still definitely much more work to be done on the family side of <laughs> you like you like I'm gonna leave it there but I mean I hear you and to say again that the pandemic had to happen to that for that to be illuminated because my question then becomes you didn't all of a sudden during the pandemic get a predominantly Spanish-speaking uh family base that's what you've been at so prior to that what Good were you point. doing to make sure that parents uh, were getting, you know, information and messages in their native language. Like, what were you doing all this time? The pandemic hit and then all the Latinos in the community came to your school. That's not what happened. <laughs> this has been your student population. That's right. So that's, so that's that's interesting. That's shameful, actually. But yeah, it's less it's more shameful than interesting. Yes. Yes. Like you said, it's a lot of work to be to be done on those fronts. So I know we've talked about, you know, kind of the disparities that our students are facing with the lack of Latino teachers. But what are some of the benefits, okay, to just having a Latino teacher, period? So, of course, we talked a little bit about just having somebody who understands you and knows your culture. But, I mean, I would love to take this time to celebrate our Latino teachers. Like, what are the benefits of having a Latino teacher? Having a Latino educator is everything to Latino children and families. And I think to a lot of kids. To every kid. So, so we say this kid. about Black, uh, black, black teachers. Like, it's great for Black students to have Black teachers. But Black teachers are great for not just Black students, for all students. All and students. I say the same about our Latinx teachers. They're not just good for Latinx students. They're good for all students. That's right. For sure. That's right. I mean, again, we all know that for our all of our children to operate in a multicultural world, it's just essential. I mean, these things don't, I don't understand why they're an argument. I do. I do because of racism. I'm not right. trying to be naive here. I get what you're saying though. But, but it, if you just have common sense, it just makes all the sense in the world that mm-hmm. we need everyone to figure out how to be in community together Yes. And it starts with our schools because that's those are the adults that our f- kids first interact with and engage with. So yep. to me, it's kind of obvious. But look, we bring that cultural wealth. I, I love our community. And yes, we're not a monolith, but you put on some bad bunny and we're all dancing to it. <laughs> yes. OK, <laughs> you put on some Selena, <laughs> Selena. Sorry. Um, <laughs> 
you're going to get everybody excited about yes. joining in. And it's that, that joy that mm-hmm. our community brings the language, the food, the effervescence of our people. Mm-hmm. And I think that cuts across all of our nationalities. And this was always like the most beautiful thing to me was the opportunity to bring together Latinos from all kinds of backgrounds into our fellowships. And day one, it's like this, like, yes. and I just snapped my fingers, <laughs> the, the instantaneous connection and the connection to similar experiences, getting the chancla, uh, you get the, the chancla if you're misbehaving. Everybody understands that. Yes. Everybody understands the dancing and the music and the ways you celebrate and the way we value our ancestors and know that we stand on the shoulders and that we are all here trying to do better for our community. And we all feel a shared deep responsibility to that. So yes. how is that not going to show up in our schools and classrooms as a super positive thing? And it's by good. the way, if you can speak Spanish with your teacher or a, a parent can, and not just to the one teacher that has to, you know, in that one school bu- school building, because that is not what we want. We mm-hmm. want families to feel a sense of belonging walking into our schools because when Senora Sanchez comes into the building, I can actually say her name. Mm-hmm. I have so much joy uh, when we talk about Latinx teachers. I know a lot on the show, I talk just about my experience. But one of the things is I'm from the South Bronx. Mm. So I grew up in a heavily populated Latinx community and I was raised in school by Latinx women. I had multiple Latinx teachers. My favorite teacher of all times, my kindergarten teacher, Miss Sylvia Lugo, shout out to Miss Lugo, Lugo. Um, was the woman who gave me the positive orientation to school. Like it was because of her that I loved school. It just was. But I mean, I probably from K five had four or five Latinx ah. uh, um teachers. Yeah, Miss Lugo, Miss Fahar, Miss Ventura. I mean, so many, right? Look at like you. I can go on and on and on. Um, But on top of that, I was surrounded by Latinx students. And I laugh again when people lump Latinx folks into one box because I had a best friend that was Dominican. I had a best friend that was Puerto Rican. I had another one that was Ecuadorian, right? All of them Latinx girls, but all different. Um, And I had so much Latinx students, even that I went to high school with, we used to have like International Day, best day. Because from all cultures, right, they would bring food, they would bring music, um, their parents would show up. Like it was, again, just a beautiful thing for me to grow up and be celebrated amongst a community of Latinx men and women. Um, so for me, the benefit definitely, it raised my cultural awareness of other people other than myself, other than being Black and growing up in a Black community or, or growing up in the projects. I was able to go to other homes eat other foods. I mean, to this day, right? Pastelitos. Like that's my thing. But again, I grew up, I grew up spending the night at my Dominican girlfriend's house and her uncles would come over and they would make pastelitos, right? Like those kind of things gave me a different view into another world and a different lens of, you know, 
of a world that I would just have never been exposed to. But the one thing that I can say is that care and community amongst that that community came first. I was so loved up on and so loved up upon by teachers, by by again by the students, but by their own families. Um, it was something that I would say, like you know, it shaped me. It made me who I was today. But the love, the care, and the community that I feel like you get from a Latinx community, very similar to Black communities. Like we are a family. We accept you for who you are. So for me, I just wanted to be able to share that, especially for my educational experience. Like Latinx women taught me, they raised me. That's amazing. And you just gave a, you just illustrated why it matters so much. (laughs) It does. It really, really does. So one of the things that I'm pretty sure your, your org is, is working on our recruitment and retention strategies for Latinx teachers. Because I, I know there are folks listening um, to this podcast, like how, right? How do we support, how do we recruit and how do we retain Latinx teachers within this education ecosystem? Yeah. So uh, how many hours do you have? Um, <laughs> we only have an hour. <laughs> so we can jump into just a few. No, we'll just name a few. So I'm going to talk about policy and practice. And so first on the policy side, and I'm going to give an example of what we're doing here in Massachusetts. And we have we have different regions across the country. One of them is Massachusetts. And um, so we, uh, right before the pandemic, released a report called Mirrors and Windows, um, Latinx teachers, and sort of what kind of recruitment and retention strategies would be the most important to be enacted to to better support Latino educators. And from that grew this idea that we needed to take some of that and and start to do some policy work and activating our our broader network toward um, an agenda and a and a policy. And in Massachusetts, we've been talking about diversifying the educator workforce for a very long time. I've been in conversations for a very long time, but no legislation had ever been introduced. Um, so we we built a coalition of over 50 organizations, because by the way, nobody even knew that there were over 50 organizations that were, were working on the pipeline at various points. And so we brought as many of those organizations together and said, let's prioritize what we think would be the most important provisions that should be part of a bill, which would ultimately become the Educator Diversity Act. This bill is designed for all educators of color. It is not just for Latinos because the barriers are so similar um, that it really just makes sense that the bill that we introduce should be more inclusive of more educators of color. So we built this coalition. We've been advocating in the legislature for the last 18 months. That bill uh, very quickly uh, got to the floor and we just made it to almost the finish line. It didn't quite get passed in this last session, but we were able to secure 15 million more dollars in support of removing financial barriers for more educators of color to enter in the profession. And I do believe that in 2023, we will see that bill get done. So that is just one really important component. And it sort of illustrates the need to 
do both the policy and the practice work. So on the practice side, look, we know that there are a series of ways and innovative ways that are currently happening, but I think it's more fragmented still around uh, paraprofessional programs as one example, para to teacher programs. We know a lot of Latino educators serve in a paraprofessional role. Well, we need to put them on a path to achieving their teaching certification and in, and continuing their education. Uh, grow your own programs. One thing I'm really interested in is seeing a much more concerted effort on early college pathways because that is big now. And you're seeing all that success happening across the country. In Massachusetts, it's really taken flight. And in Texas, they're one of the leads on early college. Well, what about the teacher pathway in early college? Because those early college pathways tend to focus on STEM careers, healthcare, and other sort of high needs areas, while mm -hmm. education is a high need area. Yes. So that's one thing that I think you're starting to see some traction on building um, the pathway through early college, but I'd like to see that uh, really be an intentional focus. And it's something we're working on here that I would put out there to our listeners that if you have early college programs happening in your state to think about and take a look at if there are educator pathways, are there enough? And if they're not, how can you advocate for more? Uh, so those are a few things I would say. Um, another thing I, I think I would mention um, is a longer term pathway for our early childhood care providers. And we're seeing this issue of workforce, as, as we all know, it's, it transcends, again, across the whole education continuum. So we have the majority of Latinos in education, as I said, are, are in para roles or they're in early childhood roles. And so we need to really invest in the level of pay that our early childhood providers offer. And we need to provide pathways for them to continue getting credits, building their skills so they can continue to grow in a career that is family sustaining over time. We cannot expect educators to work for poverty level wages because that's what's happening. And we got to value any educator uh, in the same way. For so sure. that that's really uh, come on our radar as something that we, we both on a practice change side and policy and change policy. side, we got to make some changes. Yes. Hit it from two ways. I love it. I love it when we talk about our Latinx community, like we've been saying the whole show that they're not a monolith. So one of the things that I, I love to highlight is the importance of identity and how folks identify. So I know like one of the things that trips me up or has in the past sometimes is the term like Latinx. Like our, what's the appropriate term to use, right? Latinx, Latino, Hispanic, right? Some people are okay with that. Some people are not. I would love for you to just talk about in general, just those terms of identity and how important it is to be conscious of how people choose to identify themselves. Yeah, I think that's the main point is to be conscious and also uh, ask and understand the context in which you're operating. Because those terms are uh, used uh, by different different people. 
Just another label for non-white, but we can... (laughs) (laughs) Just another label for non-white, but yes. Yeah, I mean, we know that Hispanic was um, the nomenclature used for census purposes. Mm -hmm. Most, I would say most people, especially younger generations, never use Hispanic. Hispanic. Um, Latino is, I think, more widely used. Latinx is actually not used by the majority of Latinos. So I think it's just important to name that. I hear it much more in our context, in our fellowships and our alum, the people who participate in our network, Latinx is much more common. And so we try to use the terms interchangeably. We are Latinos for education. And I don't see that changing anytime soon, but we, we call our programs different things so that it uh, reaches a broader audience um, and that people will see themselves in that. And then you have Latin A, uh, which is sort of the next level that I think is not very common, but it's out there. Got it. Yep. You saying is the first time I'm hearing it. So I haven't heard of, of Latin A yet, but again, appreciate this um, range of variations of how people choose to identify, but it is important to accept that, right? Like people identify how they want to identify and we can't keep trying to put people um, in our own boxes, but it is important to educate yourself so you're not out here offending people, Um, which is why my show is super important. Like, hey, let's get educated here so that we're using correct terms or we're approaching situations um, in the best way, not being offensive to others. I think that's right. And, and being aware of your audience and asking, how do you like to be, how do you like to be called? And then I guess the last thing I'll say on this topic is by and large, Latinos like to identify by their nationality. Let's see. Thank you. I appreciate you. I am Guana. I am Puerto Rican. I'm Dominican. That's who I am. Yes. It was not till I got out into the broader, I guess, world and audience that this grouping of Latino people happened because I would name people, like I said, I knew folks who were Ecuadorian, I knew folks who were Dominican, uh, Puerto Rican, right? Joseph Borinqua, right? Like that is how I know to know what culture people are from. Not by like, oh, all of you guys are Latinos. I don't even think we call people Latino where I was from unless you were from South America. <laughs> and if you were South America, like, oh, they they Latino, right? Like, but if you were from what I would consider to be the main groups of folks who were in the South Bronx with me, no, you identify by your nationality. And that's how we knew what you were. Like, yeah. if you were Mexican, like all of this, that's how we knew what you were. We never, yeah. I never referred to any of my friends and their family as Latino. But when I got into this broader space and a more professional space, like everybody's Latino and I'm like, but how do, who's Puerto Rican? Who's Dominican? Like, that's also to me important to know. I learned from a very early age, even language, right? Mm -hmm. Just because they're all Latino and Spanish speaking doesn't mean that they all speak the same dialect, same language. It's different depending on the country that you go to. So that's also why I was like super problematic for me to just call people Latinos. It was, it was odd. Yeah, it's a, a double-edged, it's odd, <laughs> and it's also a double-edged sword because you want to be identified by your nationality. That's where your source of pride comes from. Yes. And then you also, um, if you're if you're lumped in as a Lat- just Latino, then you lose that. But then mm-hmm. if you're not lumped in as Latino, then you're not paid attention to. 
Yes. So you still have to be unified <laughs> in the fact that you're facing the same <laughs> oppression, right? So I completely get it. But I, it, as we're talking this through, I think the moral of it is like, yes, unified in the struggle of as, as Latinos, but culturally, as we're all learning and respecting, like, yes, respect people's nationality and understand that if folks are from um, Latino descent, like they have a nationality that they are attached to. Get to know that person, get to know them, their culture, um, and what country their families and their ancestors originated from, for sure. That's right. That's right. Um, That's the lesson. Yeah. So I love, like, yes, I- I'm glad that we hinted on that. But I also don't want to escape from just really lifting up the fact that you identify that um, you are a Latino woman, but you present as white. I think that that is an important topic that some people like get nervous about touching on, but of course not you, right? Because you already said like my privilege and my access and what it has allowed me to do. I would love for you to like speak a little bit on that and why that's important. Yeah. I And I'm, and I'm very white. So <laughs> Amanda, <laughs> The way but, you say that. But I'm not, I know, as if it's, well. <laughs> but my heart and soul are of a Latina. And it has allowed me into spaces being as light as I am and getting sort of some initial credibility as a result. But the tables have taken me a long time to get to. And then I think people get surprised at what I say and what I'm willing to say and what I'm willing to call out. So that's, that's the responsibility that I have. And I'm happy to take it and, and be that because... I want to, and I have to, and it's something we actually try to make sure with our board fellowship in particular of like, you actually have a responsibility, no matter what shade you are as a Latino on a board to, to be that advocate, to ask the hard questions and to push organizations and institutions in their thinking. So, I use the privilege that I have to do that. And it's been very scary to do that and risky at times Mm -hmm. to say the thing that needs to be said, even when your voice shakes. But I think it's incumbent upon us when we are at those tables to do that, because if we don't do it, who's going to do it? So I, I fully recognize even that I might be questioned um, also as a white presenting Latina in terms of my Latinidad. And that has been questioned. Wait, but you're so white. And that's other Latinos saying to me, but you're so white. See, sí, soy muy blanca, pero the fire in me is 100% Latina. Like I, I am more comfortable in my Latino community than I am in the white community. I can navigate both, and that is a lucky thing I get to do. But I do and say and act in ways that represent 
the work that we do and why we do it. That's my job. And that's inside of me that that's how I need to show up. Yeah. I mean, sounds like gift, curse, same time, right? Like, understandably, why, you know, why presenting in in a Latino community, folks would question, but in a way, it has allowed you to get indoors. And otherwise, we may not have been able to get to, so that Latino voices could be in those spaces. Latino con- concerns could be heard. Um, but again, what I love about this is that it's you. Because everybody doesn't take that privilege and use it in the ways that are going to benefit um, our people. Um, and you are working, definitely working to do that. Um, another thing I want to roll on to is... We call it the black and brown get down, okay? Um, Just ways that we as a people can really increase our allyship um, amongst each other. Like how can we help our folks understand that we are rooted in a common struggle? Because sometimes I feel like we're just fighting with opposite sides of the line um, and not unifying in our struggle. Well, we're, we're made to be sort of pitted against each other, right? Like the pie's so small that, we have to each uh, try to hold on to that little bit that we have. And I, I have really shifted my mindset on that in particular over the pandemic of like, wait, there's actually an abundance. And so how do we, how do we come together? Part of it is our work we need to do as a Latino community. You know, one example I'll cite is that, um, we actually have a, a Supreme Court case, Westminster versus Mendez, that actually preceded Brown v. Board about segregation in schools in California. And when we talk about that case, there are many Latinos who have never heard of it. And frankly, a lot of people who haven't heard of it. And so it's part of it. It's like, we, we need to educate our own communities about how we are connected in that common struggle and what, and using examples like these court cases that um, unifies us because Latino families were segregated in California, were lynched in Texas. Those things happened. And so these are the things that our own, and I'll, speak for Latino community to, to dig into that because that then helps us to see where that unified struggle exists and why, and, and then why we need to come together. Um, and you know, black and brown get down is a really nice way to do it. Yes. For like sure. Through breaking bread and having fun together and yes. realizing that we share a lot and look, we have many Afro-Latinos in our fellowships and our programs that feel like, I don't know where I'm supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always say, go to both. <laughs> be be both because you are both. Yes. What, and, and, I, what you're about to hit on is that, I mean, this would take a whole nother show, but the argument sometimes that I get into um, with um, Latino folks about anti-blackness when I completely understand in terms of saying like, well, I'm, I'm not black. Right. Because 
in essence, right, if I look at you, I mean, they're like, you're not black, right? Because we're in America and there's a social construct on whether you either have to choose black or white. But a lot of times when I have conversations with Latin, Latino people, I ask for them to look inside their ancestry. Meaning, most of the time you are African though, right? Like, search into your diaspora. You are African. You may not be black, but you are African, right? That is a part of your heritage. That is a part of your lineage. Um, your people were kidnapped and literally just dropped off at a different place, right? So let's be clear about who you are at the core of your being. Not black, but you are African. And, you know, taking a deeper look in that. And then again, even rooted in the common struggle of diaspora and enslavement. You just It was just on a different continent. It was, on a, it was in a different country. So having those levels of conversations too, a lot of times is where I start. But we all know, right, that education for our folks has, has been omitted, yeah. right? So even a lot of times when we talk about Black history, um, there needs to be a fight for, for Latino history as well. But there needs to be ways that we can find its commonalities and where it all started and where it all rooted. So we don't just believe, like for Black people, that our history started as slavery. Or for Latinx folks, your history started in whatever country, you know, your first or second generation came from. It started way before that. We were once all together. So, like I said, that could be a whole nother show. It but. would be, and I hope you have one, because we have to talk about how that's how that manifests in the, the shame that is brought upon in Latino communities of thinking that it's much better to be white, right? So generations pass on that shame, um, undeserved shame, and, and not seeing it as a source of pride. And that, um, I would say, is a really good topic to have because our our own families do that, perpetuate it, and that's something we struggle with a lot in our community. We talk a lot about it in our, in our fellowships and sort of how it makes us feel about feeling like we have to um, be different because our families think having the straight hair or the whiter skin is better. Yes. That colonialized. um, Yes. Colonized. Yes. um, Frame of thinking for sure. Frame of thinking. Thank you. Yes. Listen, we got to have you back um, possibly for, to to help speak upon, uh, on that topic. But we are coming to the near of uh, the end of our time. But before you get out of here, we always have a segment where we ask our guests to thank a Black teacher. And I'm going to ask you to thank a Black and Latino teacher. So a teacher, some teachers, the spotlight, the floor is yours to do so. Well, I, I can't name one Latino teacher because we have so many amazing Latino educators at Latinos for Education in our fellowships. And so I want to give a huge shout out to all of the Latinx educators who are fighting every day for our kids and families. Thank you for all you do. And for our Black educators, I think about our Afro-Latino educators. I think about uh, one of our staff members, Manny Cruz, who's an amazing um, representative of our community and thank people who are f- in different ways fighting for our kids. So that's my shout out. Oh, thank you. Well, again, you know, we just appreciate you stopping by Building a Black Educator Pipeline. I, we are so happy that we have you. Um, before you go, are there any final words you want to say to our listeners, so our co-conspirators out there? 
I just ask our co-conspirators to take a look at Latinos for Education. We're at www.latinosforeducation.org. And we're all on the social media channels. Follow us and keep learning. And, and we put a lot out there for people to learn and engage with us. So we encourage that. Thank you. Yes, we thank Amanda Fernandez for coming to visit us at Building a Black Educator Pipeline. Our show is hosted by the Center for Black Educator Development with the help of our partners, Bright Bean. So subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And we will see you guys next time. Peace, everybody. Peace.